I learned a lot about the merits of loneliness through talking to people on the show. So we shouldn't be in this binary mode of trying to cure loneliness in order to be socially cemented to others. But, um, but it's necessary to go through these seasons of loneliness, um, these, these thresholds of deep loneliness even, at crucial stages you know, because otherwise we wouldn't change. And I would say that's true, you know, from some of the examples on the show that that loneliness kind of told people where to go after that. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Endorphins, a mental health podcast that discusses all the ways you can find joy, happiness, and endorphins in life. This is Stella Stephanopoulos, your host, and this week I am thrilled to have Julia Bainbridge as a guest on the show. A few months ago, Julia and I sat down virtually to chat about her work in the non-alcohol space as a writer. She's the author of Good Drinks, which provides alcohol-free recipes and celebrates all the innovation that's happening in the non-alcohol community. She's also a recipient of the Research Society on Alcoholism's Media Award. She was listed as one of Food & Wine's magazine 25 first-ever game changers for being a pivotal voice in normalizing not drinking alcohol. And she also is the host of a podcast called The Lonely Hour to explore social disconnection and other forms of loneliness. Julia is a force to reckon with. It was such an honor to get to speak with her on the podcast. And in this episode, we talk about the non-alcohol space, loneliness, connection as it pertains to our health, our well-being, and finding those endorphins in life. Before I get into it, I have a brief message from my sponsor, Anchor. And if you like what you hear, make sure to like, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen to your shows. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for coming on to Everyday Endorphins. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to have you here. You are, I think, really a Renaissance woman. Like, you do it all. You published a book. (laughs) You're in grad school. You also have a podcast, which I know is no longer currently being produced, but you really do it all. So it's an honor for me to get to be with you virtually here today. And I'm so excited to get into this conversation on the non-alcohol space, on loneliness, on mental health. So again, just really thrilled to have you here. Happy to be here. And thank you for being generous with um, how you categorize how I've approached my professional life as Renaissance woman, because it it also could be taken as just very befuddled and confused about what to do. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot to be said in that, um, because as you do more things in your life or as you progress throughout your career and and find different interests and and different passions, I think they all kind of seamlessly weave together when in, in retrospect, it makes sense. But while you're going through that process, maybe it feels like you're doing just a bunch of different things that don't necessarily connect. But when you look back on it, it's it's more apparent that it's all kind of part of your story and it all makes sense. 65-year-old me will report back on that. <laughs> <laughs> We'll check in then. (laughs) I'd love to start off by talking about your book, 
Good Drinks. Can you share more about what inspired you to write Good Drinks? Where, you know, did that inspiration develop and, you know, how you really got involved with the non-alcohol space? Yeah. I mean, I, it started with my reckoning with my own relationship with alcohol and then also being somebody who wrote about food um, and these things coming together serendipitously in a way um, that, that was able to capitalize on like what was happening. I mean, I think so, so to better explain that I first removed alcohol from my life. Um, I guess this is around 2015 and I say first removed because it has not been a straight line. Um, but I really started, um, reckoning again with my relationship to alcohol around that time. And serendipitously, that was when something was happening. Like alcohol-free cocktails were starting to be taken more seriously. Bartenders were, um, kind of pushing against the just unbalanced syrupy juice mocktail, quote unquote, right? Like the the imagination of the drinks world was moving beyond the Shirley Temple. Uh, and for somebody who wrote about food and drinks, and so whose job required her to in part be dining out and picking up on, you know, what's going on in bars and restaurants, it was impossible not to notice, right? Like beverage menu real estate was being given to alcohol-free drinks. Those drinks were being given names, just like the cocktails were, which I think shows a level of of care and intention. And it was exciting, you know? Like I'm, I'm lucky that my alcohol use disorder, which is how I came to stop drinking, didn't present in a way that made it hard for me to be in those spaces where alcohol was also present. I could really just enjoy this burgeoning part of the hospitality world. So the book, I almost struggle with saying I wrote it, you know, like it really rests on the work of professional bartenders who were the ones really thinking about and developing these beverages. And I feel very lucky that they allowed me to capitalize, you know, again, on that, that newfound energy and take a snapshot of what alcohol-free drinking was looking like around the country at that time by like giving me their recipes. <laughs> so, you know, I just sort of, it was a journalistic endeavor in a way, you know, I, I got in my car uh, drove across the country a couple times. You know, I really wanted to cast a wide net and meet with people on the ground. Of course, interesting stuff was going on in New York and LA, but I mean, there's talent everywhere uh, and I wanted to to taste it. Um, and so that's how the book was, was put together. So I, I put together the book. I don't know if I wrote it. <laughs> that's incredible. Can you share more about, you know, if someone has good drinks in their apartment? Like if you were to open good drinks, what can you expect to find in the book? So you can find what you won't find. Um, maybe this is a bad way to try to sell it, but you won't find um, a book that shows you how to use a lot of the products that are on the market right now, because the manuscript for the book was filed at a time when Seedlip was really the only product that was accessible here in the States. Um, the UK, other areas of the world are a little bit ahead of us in this realm. Um, so what you will find are recipes for people who like to cook and like to tinker and um, like to roll their sleeves up and sort of uh, put work into their drinks, which I think is appropriate. You know, these these are drinks. These are proper drinks. <laughs> and they, it, you know, requires proper uh, steps to get there. Um, but... Otherwise, I mean, you'll find a range. I walk you through not only difficulty level so that you can maybe pick something that's a level two on a Tuesday when you don't want to do what I just said in terms of 
rolling your sleeves up and steeping a bunch of different citrus peels and tea for hours to get some kind of DIY based spirit then, that you then mix with something else. Um, and also just a range of flavors, a range of styles. Um, it's, it's really meant to allow you to start with your mood and what you're, you're craving and you can find that in the book. It's nice that there's a lot of different, or there's a variety of different types of drinks you can choose from, and you can choose the difficulty level depending on you know how elaborate you want to get with crafting this non-alcoholic cocktail. And to speak more about the non-alcohol space, I personally find it to be really fascinating. I've had former guests on the show that are in the non-alcohol space, um, Lily Geiger from Philia. We did an event um, at Spirited Away here in New York. Uh, a tasting of philia and a live interview. And it was really incredible to get to have people come together to talk about the sober curious community. It's something that I'm still learning a lot more about, really this distinction between like the alcohol space versus the non-alcohol space. And I've seen a lot in the media around like low, no alcohol. And I think that's a way to try to like infuse the two. But do you see like the alcohol versus the non-alcohol industry as being mutually exclusive, or is there an opportunity for those two to overlap and have some sort of synergies and intersections? Like the ability to have a non-alcohol versus like an alcoholic cocktail in like the same room in the same social setting. This is complicated. I think there is a place for say alcohol-free bars because there are certainly people who are triggered in environments where alcohol is present, and I you know those spaces should exist. Um, or I'm glad they do. I don't know about should, but but I'm glad that people like Lorelai um, from Listen Bar and others are are creating those spaces. I mean, but look, you know, of, of course there's room for overlap. I think my particular stance, again, because I'm I'm lucky to be comfortable in those spaces, even though I'm someone who has an alcohol use disorder, is not really to segregate drinkers and non-drinkers. Like if I were going to agitate for something, it's for better options at existing bars and restaurants. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly room for overlap. I think like plenty of people are interested in moderation, whether or not they have complicated relationships with alcohol. And then there are others who don't um, struggle with alcohol use disorders who have removed alcohol from their lives completely, even if it's just for a little while, like a dry month, for example. Um, and yet they're still interested in good drinks and in what's happening in the culinary world. And this is certainly something that's happening, as you know, because you've talked to people who are in it. Um, I will get on my soapbox a little here <laughs> and say, I I do the, think we should be careful not to lump together the sober curious and those in recovery. One day, I hope the distinction will not matter. Um, you know, perhaps the paradigm will shift to the point that this isn't a thing. Drink, don't drink, whatever. Like no need for a label or a dedicated dry month. Um, but while I appreciate that some people are choosing a sober lifestyle, I think it's still important to remember that sobriety has likely been painful um, for those with substance use disorders. You know, they make a hard decision every day uh, to stay the course. Uh, they usually have to engage in multiple forms of treatment. I mean, we can get into that. I mean, I believe in the biopsychosocial model of addiction, right? So you have to kind of address all those areas. It's a lot of work is the point. <laughs> um, and as long as we have a stigma around substance use disorders, which um, 
I don't think you can argue we don't still, even though things are definitely improving. Um, I, I think we have to acknowledge that sobriety has been hard won for many people. And, and you know, I just think we, we should be a little careful. I don't know if that was actually exactly your question, but that's what comes up for me. And certainly as I see this conversation swelling and um, people entering the market in terms of creating products, this is maybe a little shady, but I, I <laughs> we should be more careful about co-opting the language used in the recovery community in order to sell alcohol-free products. I mean, that's a great answer and a perspective that I don't think I actually had, had given a lot of thought about. So I appreciate hearing that. You'd mentioned this term, the biopsychosocial model of addiction. Can you talk a little bit more about that and perhaps maybe your own experience with going through recovery with you know a substance is it substance abuse disorder or substance use disorder? Yeah. And some people say substance abuse. I mean, some people also, by the way, who, you know, have severe alcohol use disorder very much identify as alcoholics and that label helps them. But I do think, um, I know kind of the, the field is moving away from that term because there is some stigma around it. Um, it can, it can be perceived as a very black and white thing when in fact, that's not how alcohol use disorder works. There's a spectrum. If you look in the DSM, right, like our big book of mental disorders, you, it is actually a spectrum. That is, you know, what science believes. Um, and I, and I, I just think people think alcoholic or not, right? Like get up shaky and needing to drink in the morning before work. And if it's not that, then I'm fine. But problematic drinking looks a lot of different ways, you know? Yes. Yes. It's not necessarily this black or yeah. white picture of what it looks like to be engaging with alcohol yeah. in an unhealthy way. It can, similar to, I would say, honestly, eating disorders. You know, they, you don't have to look a certain way to have an eating disorder and having, having an eating disorder doesn't look the same for everyone. So I think it's a similar parallel. Yes. And I think, you know, this is a little, I'll get back to your question about biopsychosocial, but um, I do think this is interesting that my feeling is that like, it's not unusual to develop some kind of drinking problem, like at least for a little while. I mean, alcohol is a drug. It is a highly addictive substance. Um, so I think looked at that way, even alcohol use disorder could be thought of as unremarkable, right? Like it's, it's painful, um, but not rare. And um, I'm looking the, yeah, the fifth and most current DSM uh, it defines alcohol use disorder as having mild, moderate, and severe classifications. So anyone who meets any two out of 11 criteria during the same 12-month period would receive a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder, and then its severity depends on the number of criteria met from there. But examples of those criteria had times when you ended up drinking more or longer than you needed, more than once gotten into situations while or after drinking that increased your chances of getting hurt. Um, driving, swimming, using machinery, uh, unsafe sex, had to drink much more than you once did to get the effect you want or found that your usual number of drinks had much less effect than before. I mean, I'd venture to say that many people who consume alcohol uh, regularly have experienced one of these as a result um, and, and maybe even other more subtle 
negative consequences such as difficulty sleeping. I'm not saying that that, you know, means they suffer from alcohol use disorder, right? The threshold is two of those criteria. But, you know, my point is that at least some of us have had a brush with the destructive side of alcohol. Hopefully that's useful. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think, I mean, it's true because when you think about even like American college culture, it's binge drinking. <laughs> it's binge drinking. And you could argue, honestly, that there's a lot of high functioning not to use the term alcoholics lightly, but a lot of functioning alcoholics in college um, where you're constantly drinking Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, maybe even more. I mean, it's 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 horrible. And it's in that environment, it's considered okay. It's considered the norm. Um, but when you remove yourself from that and, and you graduate college and you recognize, oh, my drinking habits are actually not healthy. Like it's not sustainable and it's really not good for you. I think there, yeah, there's a lot to be said just around being reflective on how you actually engage with alcohol. Yeah. So that cultural piece you're talking about would be like the social part of this model, right? So this multidimensional phenomenon in which like biologic, psychological, and sociocultural factors interact to produce illness is, is sort of uh, maybe a maybe a derivative way to talk about, or maybe a reductive way to talk about it, but like um, that's that's generally what the biopsychosocial model is about, and that that's a model for many illnesses or that way. But we're talking about alcohol use disorder in this context, and it's interesting you bring up campus culture. You know, I mean, I think um, people, especially recently, have you know, I think Malcolm Gladwell's a polarizing you know figure, but in one of his recent books. Uh, examine the Brock Turner case and, you know, just campus sexual assaults and alcohol, uh, the culture of, you know, heavy drinking, binge drinking, um, and the intersection there. And something that I maybe just haven't done my due diligence to find, but I feel like, um, I don't know, without getting too heavy, like something I feel like is missing from the conversation about, um, maybe sober curiosity, um, is me too. And that that pushed a lot of people into waking up and looking at their behavior. And I don't uh, think, um, it would be surprising to, you know, acknowledge that alcohol is often present, you know, or some form of intoxicant is, is often present, um, where sexual assault happens too. And um, yeah, I'm a little trepidatious about like getting into this topic in a big way, but um, thinking about behavior on campus just sparked something in me. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no doubt that there is absolutely a relationship between the two um, because more often than not, every single sexual assault case or instance usually involves alcohol. So of course there is some sort of relationship there and, and we don't necessarily need to touch on that, but I'm glad that you bring it up because I don't think it should be something that's overlooked. Going back more to engaging with alcohol, maybe in a healthier way, uh, you were interviewed in Gloria Magazine and in that interview you shared that you're not anti-alcohol um, and that alcohol can actually trigger the endorphin system that lowers anxiety. And that, that quote stuck out to me, obviously, because this show is about endorphins. Um, and so it was interesting to hear that there are some effects that alcohol can produce in your body that actually can create at least some sort of level of happiness. 
maybe that's, you know, through the act of lowering your anxiety levels. So can you talk maybe a little bit more about, about this and, and offer advice for how we can engage with alcohol in a healthy way? Like if you don't suffer from alcohol use disorder and you prefer to drink, but you want to engage with the substance in a healthier way, what are some ways that we can do so? So those are good questions. I feel like this is going to be the bulk of our conversation. <laughs> I have a lot to say about it, which is, I guess I'll, the second part of your question I'll address first. And, and I'll address it by saying like, I won't really answer it. I mean, I think, and, but I'll explain why. I mean, I think I won't, I won't offer advice for how to engage with alcohol in a healthy way. Cause I'm not a scientist and I'm not a medical professional, nor am I someone who works in the recovery field. Um, also, I imagine there's room for different definitions of what is healthy. Sure, there are reports like, what was it, um, earlier this year, Global Global Burden of Diseases, a study, I think, that showed that like no amount of alcohol is safe, um, despite the health guidelines in many places espousing uh, benefits associated with you know, consuming up to two drinks a day. Um, but I, I don't know, you know, there, there are plenty of intoxicants we consume that physically harm us slightly, uh, that are poisonous to our systems, essentially, but that are not fatal when managed. I think alcohol in particular is deeply tied to our culture and history. So, um, so I, th those are the reasons I'm not exactly anti-alcohol. I, I think, you know, this is maybe more than you asked for around one piece of this question, but I just, as far as the guidance thing, I don't feel comfortable, uh, you know, offering advice for how other people can engage with alcohol in a healthy way when I'm not steeped in that topic as a professional. I think, you know, another soapbox I'll step on for a moment is that like there are way too many people offering their opinions out there, way too many people acting as coaches when they have no training, way too many people on Instagram who believe they have some kind of guidance to give. And I find it irresponsible at best and potentially quite dangerous. <laughs> um, I think for those who came to sobriety because of a struggle with alcohol use disorder, again, achieving and maintaining their sobriety is certainly commendable. It takes a lot of hard work, but that doesn't make you an expert on treatment. And, you know, is there some wisdom gained in one person's personal recovery process that might be useful for others? Sure. But, you know, building a business around it or, um, or giving my two cents about it on a, a podcast that's meant to go out for public consumption, that's tricky. <laughs> so um, I hope you're not disappointed by that. <laughs> I'm not. I think that's a, a great answer, actually. And I, I really like the point that you brought up around there's, there are too many people on Instagram, on social media that are claiming to be experts about certain fields that they potentially don't really have that expertise in. And I, I agree. I think it can it can be quite dangerous um, when there, when these claims or pieces of advice or offerings are not really grounded in studies or or actual like fact. Um, so it, it can it can be a bit tricky. Yeah, I mean it's very easy to make yourself look like an expert if you want to um, by using you know the right imagery and hashtags and buzzwords and whatever else it is. Um, there are certainly people out there who are legitimate and have training. And so I don't want to be completely shady, but I guess my work has been to track and celebrate innovation in the realm of alcohol-free drinks. And yes, to normalize this kind of drinking, I have here and there written about renegotiating one's relationship to alcohol, but that's all based on reporting and speaking to people who are experts, which 
you know, I guess brings me to the other part of your question. And I'm very interested to know uh, what you know about, you know, alcohol and endorphins, if anything. But what I know about how alcohol operates based on the science is that drinking alcohol leads to endorphin release in those reward centers of the brain, like areas that feel that produce feelings of pleasure. Um, and that can lead to um, lower anxiety. And ultimately, this is why I think we talk about alcohol as a social aid, right? Or a social lubricant, um, some people say. Uh, it helps us let our hair down, so to speak. And as we were talking about earlier, maybe way too much. <laughs> um, but uh, when I spoke to uh, Dr. George Koob, who's the director of the NIAAA, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, which, you know, it's interesting. They have alcoholism in their title and they are thinking about changing that. They've certainly moved away from, from using the word alcoholic in a lot of their literature. I guess it's a little tricky when you already have a well-known acronym <laughs> or title of your whole department. Right. At this point, like rebranding might be a, yeah. bit, a bit tricky. Um I spoke to him last year and the way he put it was that alcohol is a great emotional pain reliever in the moment, right? Like people drink to loosen up and relax after work and alcohol does that um, for some of the reasons I mentioned earlier and I'm sure many you know, others. Uh, the problem is that you remember that proximal reinforcement, like you don't remember the hangover later. Um, and so you can keep turning to alcohol to give you those rewards without remembering the negative consequences that also come from drinking. In terms of the anti-alcohol, you know, my stance is like, for those people who have a healthy relationship with it, enjoy. Like, we just, we, we cannot forget that alcohol is also a highly addictive substance and not everyone can manage it. And I I am all about the popularity of dry January and sober October and um, other, you know, dry months. I, I do think the argument could be made that it shows just how difficult it is to consume alcohol in a healthy way and with ease on a regular basis. As we talked about before with the DSM, like it's not abnormal <laughs> to develop some kind of drinking problem. And I think that's perhaps why Dry January, you know, is such a welcome, is so popular, right? Is is such a welcome pause. What you had mentioned from interviewing that doctor, speaking to the, the director of the NIAAA about alcohol giving into like the, the immediate gratification. Like you, if you have that immediate feeling of lowering your anxiety levels, getting in those endorphins, feeling a bit more at ease, happier, that sense of, you know, it being a social lubricant. I think that's where the danger comes in because as it's our human nature to t to gravitate towards like the quick fix, the easy solution. And the, it's really like the, the hard work is the delayed gratification. But the, really, I believe that's where true fulfillment and happiness and joy comes in. And so I think like with alcohol, for example, where it gets to be tricky is if you're constantly looking towards the substance as a social lubricant, like, oh, I need a drink to have a conversation with this person, to go up and, and speak to this person in a social setting. And I think it stems from maybe like a lot of social anxiety. And when you get to the core of it, like those are the issues or, you know, the, the areas that you want to address to give you that sense of delayed gratification later on. Like if you can engage in a social situation without feeling the need to gravitate towards um, a substance that is going to set you, you know, better off in the long term because you're uh, not giving into those quick fixes. And I think, you know, abstracting away from alcohol, it's just a, 
a principle of life that I try to I try to reflect in my own belief system and in, in my own practices around not necessarily taking like the easy path, but going through a bit more of like the challenging instances to get that sense of delayed gratification. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the hard work of recovery too, right? That's the social piece. Like alcohol is everywhere. It's so normalized in our culture. Um, and so it takes a lot of work to find new ways of, sure, taking care of yourself, of feeling pleasure, but also um, of feeling comfortable if you're someone who deals with social anxiety and social situations, right? But yeah, I'm certainly not saying that alcohol, you know, should be used as medicine to help you be social when you're not, but I'm just acknowledging what the, what the actual substance does do for people in their brains and, and so why over time it's, it is so connected to um, social life. Exactly. And I think understanding more of like the science behind it, like the way it affects you biologically and in your brain is something that people can kind of hold on to. It's it's something a bit more tangible to hold on to. And uh, Dr. Huberman, he's a he's a researcher at Stanford and he, he is- Oh, I know. We, we know each other. I'm obsessed with him and he is a dream guest. He has a really interesting personal story. Do you know his personal background? No, I don't actually. I follow along his podcast, but I don't know his personal story. Oh, he came to this late. He was like, um, I'm, I, I'm not going to spoil it for you or any of your listeners. Um, I'll, you know, but but look into um, his his story. He's been on some podcasts talking about his life growing up and how he ultimately came to science. But it's a very unconventional path. Well, I have my my research to do clearly. Um, <laughs> but he, I, I do love his podcast, and he had recently posted something on Instagram about really like the negative effects of alcohol. And I think this post went viral because I saw it like across my entire Instagram stories and my feeds. Um, and it was kind of along the lines of of alcohol being like the one drug that if you don't do it, people are like, wait, why? Like, why why, why aren't you drinking? Um, and he was also just talking really about like the negative effects of alcohol. So I thought that was interesting and um, just also very timely too, because it was a post I had seen recently. And I think an episode he had recently produced for a show. Yeah, I've heard that line a lot. I think the first time I heard it was Holly um, Whitaker, um, but like that alcohol is the only drug you have to justify not taking. Exactly. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Perfectly said. Powerful, powerful way to drive it home. Yeah. yeah. Switching gears a little bit, but still very interrelated. You also have a podcast on loneliness called The Lonely Hour. And I find it to be really interesting. I was listening a bit earlier this morning um, about the episodes that you've produced and the goal with the show to, to make loneliness a bit less taboo. So can you share a little bit more about how you started with producing The Lonely Hour and really what you aim to share with your listeners? Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't believe I single-handedly through my small podcast can can make loneliness less taboo. And it may, you know, but I but that is that was driving, you know, the mission. Um, and it's interesting well, maybe I'll get into this later, but it, but I do think we're more comfortable with using that word now that we've all been through this experience of COVID um, in a way that we certainly weren't before. And there are reasons for why we, you know, there are reasons why are deep into our, our, you know, just humans forever, the way we have survived is in packs. Um, I think, you know, there are reasons people who are smarter than I have studied for why loneliness is taboo. But I also think it's 
it's part of the human condition, you know, I think. Um, so this, this paradox of, you know, loneliness is endemic to being human and yet it's taboo in our culture. So I, I, I it was 2016, I launched the show. It was called The Lonely Hour. And, and yeah, it was a mission to destigmatize loneliness. And that also partly just came out of, yes, what I was observing in culture at large from the, you know, writings of a lot of people who are, who study culture and, you know, philosophers like Alain de Botton, who had been thinking about this for decades before um, I grew interested in it. But um, I just think I had never heard a friend use that word. That's pretty profound that, you know, the first time, so this is before I launched the podcast, but it's part of the fodder, right? That sort of like led me towards wanting to launch it and and I guess endeavor to try to destigmatize it. But I remember, I think I was 30, you know, I'd lived 30 years of life until um, a friend in New York got a dog, like a, a tiny toy dog. And it was so not her style. And also I, I just like, I was perplexed by this move because she also just wasn't really an animal person, didn't grow up that way. Um, and so, you know, I met the dog, we had a lovely little time in the park. And then at one point I said, so, so like, wh- why did you get a dog? And, and she just turned to me and said, Julia, I'm just so lonely. And it hit like a ton of bricks because we maybe use all kinds of other words to try to talk about when we're feeling depressed or down or isolated, but no one had ever really just thrown the dart right in the center of the board that way, um, to use very mixed metaphors. So, um, yeah, I think that was part of what was knocking in my brain along with all kinds of other things. But I, I, yeah, I was like, you know, could I, could I show how normal, entirely normal loneliness is through storytelling? Can I also, you know, can it be joyful? Can there be humor in the mix as well? This is how life is. That's what's true to life. And um, it turned out, you know, yes, there could. And I think it was really important to me to keep loneliness outside of the the problem box. Uh, you know, I can't count on two hands the number of journalists who reached out to me asking for tips for combating loneliness. Um, they clearly did not listen to the show. <laughs> I think, you know, and I get it. Like we're, we're part of a, a problem solving oriented culture. Uh, those journalists wanted my help figuring out how to fix loneliness, but I cannot do that. And I will not try. So, you know, I, I also should point out that I'm referring to an everyday kind of loneliness. Um, if you will, I think acceptance of that loneliness as a part of the human experience does not mean that chronic loneliness, which I'm, you know, still understanding, um, isn't an issue, or that fraying social bonds don't need attention, and that's part of the reason why the project is is no more, or is at least on pause. Uh, the mission is sort of undergoing a change. Yeah, I mean that's exciting because also COVID, I'm sure, shifted a lot around the conversation around loneliness and. I think it's important. And I, th- I think you were also getting at this, like addressing the, the distinction between like isolation and social isolation versus like that everyday lonely- loneliness that you describe. Um, and really the paradox here for me at least is loneliness is like you mentioned, part of the human condition. It's, it's something that everyone experiences. Um, but at the same time, there's research that shows that 
loneliness, or at least maybe chronic loneliness, is a driver for anxiety and depression and can really make you feel unhappy, yet it it is just part of our human experience. And, and something that I've noticed in particular amongst people my age, like young adults, people in their 20s in particular, especially living in New York City, is how difficult it is to be alone with themselves. Like, no one wants to just be alone with themselves at this age. Like, I, I find that a lot of people experience difficulty with just being alone. And it's difficult because sometimes I even have these challenges too. Like, I personally love spending time alone. Like, I, I'm an only child, so I kind of just grew up in that environment where it was just myself and my parents. I know how to do it. <laughs> like you know you know how to do it um and I do love like my me time and I I love just having a day for myself but then I also notice that sometimes I'm kind of like on social overdrive and then the minute I'm like I don't have a plan I have this feeling of loneliness that like sinks into me and it's really difficult to get out of so I think you know even for myself like it's something I still can struggle with sometimes is is fine you know navigating that but I'm curious to hear your perspective. Like, why is it, is it an age thing or is it a generational thing? Like, why is it so hard for 20 something year olds, particularly in New York to not feel lonely? Thank you for sharing that. I, I have a lot of thoughts about it and they're all still forming. Um, and I'll just, I'll throw a lot at you that I've learned and we'll see how it lands. <laughs> Does that sound good? That's perfect. I think it's more of a dialogue here because maybe there was less of a, a specific question I had, but more so just in the nature of kind of my experience and what I've seen my peers and friends also struggle with. For sure. And that was part of, you know, when we talk about, I think you, I don't know how you put it, but sort of like getting out of that loneliness, right? Um, I, something, you know, or, or, or squashing it when you're feeling it, right? Like it's something we don't want to sit in. I think it would do us well and we're talking about loneliness here, not alone time or solitude, and we'll get into that. But when I'm talking about loneliness, which is the feeling you describe, right? Which is this sad feeling, um, not wanting to be alone when you are. I learned a lot about the merits of loneliness through talking to people on the show. Um, one of the most profound guests, David White, who's a poet and philosopher, um, talks about loneliness as a, as a doorway. He says, you know, quite often a difficult and vulnerable doorway, the one you don't want to go through. But, but you know, he thinks of loneliness in this kind of seasonal way, like it's going to come into your life at times, and that um, it's 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 a kind of clearing of the space. Um, it brings us down to this fun foundational understanding of, of what we want, right? I think he, he would say, you know, try to see it as a foundation for understanding yourself and then from stepping off of that. So, so we shouldn't be in this binary mode of trying to cure loneliness in order to be socially cemented to others, but, um, but it's necessary to go through these seasons of loneliness, um, these, these thresholds of deep loneliness even um, at crucial stages you know, because otherwise we wouldn't change. And I would say that's true, you know, from some of the examples on the show that that loneliness kind of told people where to go after that. That doesn't mean like wallowing in it. And I'm just saying maybe we it can help us learn to embrace it a little more when it arrives. Yeah. It will. 
it will. I think there's a difference also between wallowing in something and embracing it. When you wallow, I think it's the it's the self-pity. It's the victim mindset. That's That can be quite dangerous when you, you get into those negative thought patterns because you can then start to have these like self-perpetuating ideas about yourself that just can kind of keep you going down that rabbit hole even deeper. But rather than like wallowing in that loneliness, you can you can make something a bit more productive out of it and recognize that these feelings do ebb and flow. Like as is life, there are great there are good moments and there are less good moments. Not necessarily bad, but just not as elevated as your happiest self in a specific mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And it's recognizing that it is kind of like this necessary step to achieving the next thing. Um, you know, when I think about my own experiences with loneliness, the times that I felt most lonely few months later, like greatness emerges. It's kind of like the Phoenix, like metaphor. Um, And so I think there's a lot of beauty in that. Um, But it can be difficult to recognize that when you are in like the depths of loneliness. So from the guests that you've had on your show or from your own experiences, what can someone do to have a more positive forward-looking mindset to help them move through that experience? Well, very few. Yeah, it's hard. And I think, you know, David is able to talk about things this way because he's seasoned in terms of just his life, right? He's older. Um, he's lived more of it. And um, I think you just, with more time and more observation of your life, you're able to kind of maybe recognize that loneliness when it's coming in and and sort of, de- you know, deal with it differently than you might have otherwise. I also want to address what you were talking about, about like your your age group and loneliness. I think like, you know, you're certainly, I mean, one thing I think of is like all the stimuli we have, the content coming at us, social media, you know, there's a lot of work that's been done on this, a lot of work that will continue to be done on this. Um, but I, I, you know, it's understandable that given how much we're inputting all the time, we're on, we, we get uncomfortable when we don't have it. <laughs> um, which is unfortunate because boredom is important to creativity. And I would point you towards Manush Zomorodi, who's done a lot of great work on on that. Um, but so maybe we can embrace boredom too, which, yeah. Um, but, I, you know, even before the pandemic arrived and certainly, you know, um, and I'll, t- I'll talk about the pandemic in a sec, but like, you know, more and more people around me in the years leading up to the show were joining the economy of freelancers, right? And gig workers, we're certainly seeing that now with um, the not so quiet quitting, I guess the great resignation, people leaving. So it's, it, it's you know, then hard to sort of work on your own and get used to that. So, you know, there's that more people living alone than ever before in human history. Um, arbiters of meaning changing, uh, you know, union, church, club memberships, all on decline. What's replacing them? Like we are hardwired to be social and to, you know, get a sense of meaning through how we function as part of a community and a, and a larger organism. So uh, we we have a lot of geographic mobility. Um, cool. But I think we we really learn yearn for that community and and for a, a sense, a daily sense of mattering to other people. Um, I think we we belong to little today is is maybe the point, and that's dangerous. I think again for humans who are really w- wired for connection, um, 
And I think without getting too political, I mean, I think I think in the U.S. we're seeing, you know, just how dangerous it can be, I think, you know, with our extreme political polarization and and um, I, I, I don't want to get too political and potentially alienate um, any of your conservative listeners if they exist. But um, but, you know, I think it could be argued that loneliness was one of the factors that gave us a Trump presidency. You know, um, writer, I think Hannah Arendt um, would say that loneliness is the defining condition of totalitarianism. So um, I digress. I, you know, then so we, we talked about what was happening leading up to, to 2016, um, uh, during which time you were at what in college or, you know, you were young. I, I was in high school. <laughs> high school. OK, so part, that's that's all part of what you're feeling. Right. Your generation is feeling, I'm sure. Um, and then so because so because Cigna, BBC, Kaiser, they all published revealing loneliness studies. This was um, a year into my making the show. So 2017, I'm not saying there's any connection there and I had anything to do. Obviously those studies took a very long time to put together, but clearly they it was were, perfect you know, timing. People are also taking note of what was happening culturally and dug in deeper. And then at that time came out with some of the results of that study. And, um, and you know, I'm, I am concerned about the ways in which COVID might worsen, um, what Vivek Murthy, our surgeon general, um, refers to as the social, recession. Um, and he certainly in, in 2017 also called it loneliness and epidemic. Um, so yeah, what, uh, what we're facing now in, you know, on top of all of that, right? Like we, we are in a global pandemic that forced us into isolation. So this is certainly not the everyday kind of loneliness I set to examine on the show. <laughs> so, you know, and I think the the show, the way I used to make it still has value, but um, there are more urgent concerns. Um, and then in my first year of school, um, I was serving forced migrants, right? So uh, refugees, asylees, survivors of human trafficking. So that unmooring, you know, that, um, that, uh, against their will leaving, you know, of their homes um, and, and the trauma they're carrying is, is a whole nother thing too, right? The loneliness that I saw a lot of um, newcomers to this country who, um, you know, especially in New York City, can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine like coming here, not speaking the language, um, trying to ride the subway, all of it is just so isolating as you see everybody else moving around you swiftly and quickly. Um, so I don't know, my thoughts are all over the place, but those are some things that are coming up, um, coming up. I think, yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on all that as I throw them there? <laughs> no, I, it's, it's a lot. And I mean, clearly you've, you've done the podcast for so long. I know no, you're, I taking, all over the place. <laughs> you're, you're taking a break right now at the podcast, but it's just really amazing to hear how much you've taken away through the episodes that you've done, you know, through your own examination of like this cultural understanding of loneliness. And then also maybe your own experience and looking at how certain factors like the election, for example, and then also, you know, moving into 2020 with COVID has shifted the way in which we engage with loneliness. And, um, you know, I, I think this is something that I would even, challenge my listeners to take a more critical eye towards because I, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of my listeners, my audience is primarily young adults, mm -hmm. people in their twenties, mid twenties, late twenties. And it's, 
it's such an interesting time because so much is happening. And I think like the beginning of this, of this time is, is very challenging because it's like the initial transition, like graduating from school. Someone once told me that, and I, I love this, um, this saying, but the minute you, that you graduate college, you're living life in like three dimension. You could go any which way you choose. There's no more predefined milestones that you need to hit. Um, you, you can really create that path. And so I think the uncertainty can be very difficult. Um, the uh, Moving to a different city, learning how to make friends, you know, without necessarily having a lot of common ground between other people. Um, you know, there's a lot of change and transition. And I think when you're moving through times that are highly transitional and, and filled with a lot of change, there, I, I'm sure there is like some sort of relationship with loneliness, like experiencing loneliness when you're ebbing and throwing through times of uncertainty. And so, you know, I would oh, challenge yeah. my listeners to and change, you know, that's yeah. part of why change can be so hard is mm-hmm. you're unwinding yourself from a, a familiar routine and a routine that might have made you feel connected to something um, and trying to establish a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And I think it's really about giving yourself the grace to recognize how you feel, but not let that fully like encompass you, not let that be your everyday experience. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's, it can be difficult. Like we talked about earlier when you kind of fall into that rabbit hole. Um, and like you mentioned also, you know, we're inherently social beings. We, we have this desire, this longing to be connected. Mm-hmm. So perhaps maybe a healthier mindset to adopt or rather a mindset to adopt that could help embrace this feeling of loneliness is recognize that it is like a collective feeling. It's a universal feeling. So you can lean into that and know that you're not alone in that experience. Yeah, we, we are alone together. <laughs> you know? exactly. um, yeah, I think, you know, something that I, I'll, I'll I guess I should, I want to go back for a second to, to explain why my thoughts are all over the place. I will say that like um, that I think because I attach myself to this topic of loneliness, and at least before the pandemic hit, you know, if you Google like loneliness, <laughs> people uh, who are doing work on loneliness, like they're not that many. I mean, many of them are in the academic field, and then there's like me, who you know, uh, if a journalist who saw the stigma. Loneliness Report wants to find someone who will give good quote on the topic. They're like, oh, she's in media. She knows how to speak. She knows how to give good quote. She's into loneliness. Let's go for her, right? And and I'm lucky that there was, you know, attention around me in the show um, that, but that, you know, ultimately um, led to people being interested in a book. Um, and I was like, yo, <laughs> I'm not an expert. Like, I... I'm a student along with my listeners, along with the guests who come on my show. Um, and I certainly don't have enough thoughts to fill, uh, you know, hundreds of pages. Um, I do think with this degree um, that I'm that I'm pursuing now and some years of practice that there could be, you know, I, I am interested in this topic. I think it's, you know, we're, we're only going to continue to kind of feel the the form of isolation and loneliness that I do think is problematic and not and not the one that is is you know um, just part of the human experience for some time and um, and so I'm I'm wondering you know in the short term sort of how can I help individuals sort of better manage that 
um, through therapy, but maybe in the long term, there is some work to do on it when I am an expert in decades. And so I think some of those many thoughts were coming from my toying around and doing some research and starting to pull together various threads and think about what would that work be ultimately. But I guess, I mean, a good way maybe to kind of transition out and, and, and a, a good nugget from, again, David White, who I think is just like my intellectual idol at this point, is being alone is simply a state, right? Like that's an objective state about how many people you have around you at a given time. Loneliness is a feeling. Um, and I would describe it in some of the ways we have already, right? I think a sense of being unmoored, um, unanchored, not belonging. Um, and I think the worry that you're not going to be seen, um, by anyone in the way you want to is bound up in there. Um, but you can feel lonely when you're alone and you can also feel lonely when you're surrounded by people, you know, proximity, as you know, from living in New York all your life, right? I think that the loneliness that you can feel when you're surrounded by other people is actually more isolating at times than the lonely the loneliness that you feel when you're actually physically alone. It's funny when I ask people uh, in the first season of the show when it was a bit of a different format, it changed as my sort of thoughts on all this you know got more sophisticated, and um, I, I used to have a series of questions I would ask everyone. And one of those was, when was the loneliest you felt in your life? And the examples people gave me were all times when they were around other people. Um, and that's just a thread that I saw after reflecting on them, um, which is profound, you know? It is, I think, because in theory, you you wouldn't think that you're feeling lonely when you're around other people. People are meant to bring you happiness and, and foster that social connection and bond. But if you do recognize that you are feeling lonely around a specific individual or in a specific social setting, um, that's that's really powerful to take note of because I think often it, it lends itself towards probably something deeper that's not being addressed. Um, and I know that right now you're in grad school, so... And I believe you're, you're you're in your second year of grad school. I'm in social work school on the clinical track. So so yes, ultimately we'll be a psychotherapist. Um, and I think that's just an, an incredible like next step in your career path because it bridges together all of your passions. Like from what we talked about earlier in this interview, the non-alcoholic space, now transitioning into loneliness. Um, culturally what, you know, impacts our feelings of loneliness. And if I think becoming a psychotherapist is such an amazing way to give back to people, to bring all of your learnings together and help others feel empowered to live the best version of their lives that they can, like the healthiest and the happiest version of, of the lives that they can. Um, and so I think it's very inspiring and um, just very excited for you in this next adventure of yours. Thanks. I mean, I, I do believe loneliness is at the root of, of you know, so, so much uh, that ails us. You know, I think um, addiction, depression, obviously there are many other things in the mix there, but um, that's something that's really echoing, again, Vivek Murthy, who um, is our former and current Surgeon General, but who, who in the time between those two stints um, wrote a book called, I think, Together. I mean, coming away from his first um, like tour as Surgeon General, he was like, wow, the thing, the thread I see among all the people I was privileged to talk to all over the country about what ails them is loneliness. 
And that is mm -hmm. going to be the focus of a lot of his work ongoing. And so I'm just, maybe I'm just a Vivek Murthy hype girl and I'm doing it <laughs> in a way, but I think maybe a way to underscore the pleasure of solitude, right? Which is, which is, I think, you know, loneliness, as we've been talking about, I would say is like a, is, is negative, right? It's a sad feeling. It has to do with perception, right? Because you can feel lonely around other people, like we said. Um, the perception that, you know, your your social relationships are inadequate uh, in light of your preferences, right? So um, I would tend to define solitude as something more positive. Uh, it's something we seek, right? Does that feel right to you? Yes. And um, there was this, I'm, I know, I'm sure you're familiar with the book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He, he talks a lot about the importance of solitude. And um, it's something I've given a lot of thought to over the past few years. So I would, I would agree that solitude is like a, a good, a good thing. It's, it's, it's something that is actually productive and can also help deepen your relationship to yourself, which is incredibly important. Yeah. I mean, not that, not that, you know, anything good has to be productive, but, but yeah, I mean, I think I, there's a pleasure, I think, in solitude, for me at least, and that's found in fostering my relationship with myself, with great books, with nature, with the things in my home sometimes, and I think there's another nugget, and if I was going to leave on any uh, note, it would be this one. I'm just, I'm just regurgitating a lot of David White's thoughts here, but I think that's another thing he taught me. This addresses some of the difficulties we have today and also on, and, and how to take more pleasure in solitude, both. Um, so he was saying, you know, I think I think one of the difficulties of today is that we've put all our eggs in one basket and that, you know, we try to hold the conversation. He talks about the conversational nature of reality all the time, you know? And so it's, you know, we feel connected when we feel connected to other humans, right? So it's about this, this conversation through human forms. And yet, you know, throughout our evolution as human beings, we've, we've always held this conversation with a multiplicity of qualities like, the blue in the sky or the red in the sunset in the evening, right? Or the movement of leaves, he said, at the very top of a silent wood. He is a poet, we have to remember. <laughs> and the breeze is coming through. So, you know, his point is, um, it's he found it kind of strange that we've defined the fact that we're, um, you know, that we, that we say we're alone when we're just not in conversation with another human being he'd say, you're not alone, actually. You're just not paying attention to all of these other sort of friendships and um, relationships that um, could uh, be engaged in all around you. So I think he would say one of the reasons we've gotten lonely today is we've forgotten we can have those friendships. Um, and he talked about, he was like, I was in New York um, in the spring. I was in Central Park. It was that first day when spring really showed itself, right? And you, you know, I guess anywhere we see, you know, people emerge, right? Like <laughs> New York had had terrible weather. Suddenly, that first day of beautiful spring um, and hundreds of people, you know, just like streaming into the park. Um, and they were just brought alive by that first day. Um, it was a Sunday, so, you know, they could take time. But, you know, he was like, you could see this happening. You could see this seeking for another form of friendship. You know, the sky, the smell of the blossoms in the park, how your body feels in the sun. Um, so, you know, he'd say we do well to reestablish um, these friendships. I think that's a great quote and excerpt to land on and definitely gives me 
something to think about and also is very related to the final question that I have for you. It's a question that I ask every guest that comes onto the show, very thematic with everyday endorphins, finding joy in the pleasures and the small things in life. So my question to you, Julia, is what is something that brings you a bit of endorphins every day? The thing that's coming to mind is not as poetic as actually what David White was talking about. Um, sex. Like, I I feel really grateful that uh, sex is not difficult for me. I mean, you have to remember I'm in I'm in social work school. I'm I'm thinking a lot about trauma and and, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, I'm just seeing a lot of what people go through, you know, I, I think for me, um, look, you know, there are so many barriers like to accessing that pleasure, especially for women, maybe even especially for women who grew up at a certain time. I feel really lucky that I haven't experienced trauma in that um, area and that this, this kind of play, I mean, how much do we play as adults? You know, this is a really area where we play with other people and it's something that's fun that, you know, of course can, can physically feel good, but also can make me feel really um, connected to another person. So, you know, there are many other things like dancing and laughing with friends, but um, but sex is the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> I love that answer. It's not an answer I've had on the show. So you're the first one to say that sex it's, is something that brings you endorphins. <laughs> it's, it, it is quite the obvious answer. Um, I have been wanting to interview a sex therapist, so I think that could be a great part to follow up to your answer to what brings you endorphins, um, because there's a lot to be um, said about the relationship between pleasure and happiness, and um, there's just a lot of interesting work out there that talks about that. So thank you for giving my listeners such a a fun answer to listen to. (laughs) Not for nothing, I think that I'm starting to think that um, within the air, you know, if I have a specialty in in the therapeutic world, it's, it will be couples and sex. So, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm excited to see everything that you're going to continue to achieve. And I'm a huge fan of your work and just getting to have this opportunity today has been absolutely incredible. Julia, where can my listeners find you on social media? Where can they follow along with your with everything that you do. Well, thank thank you for having me. I hope I didn't bumble too much and there was something <laughs> that people can walk away with. You can find me at Julia Bainbridge everywhere, really. JuliaBainbridge.com is, is, you know, my online portfolio of work. Julia Bainbridge on Twitter, on Instagram. Pretty straightforward. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening and remember to like, rate, and review this podcast on whichever listening platform you prefer. Don't forget to keep spreading endorphins and find things that bring you endorphins every day. See you next time.